Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, everyone. This is the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 2 and Shelf Exams, Surgery Edition. I am Patrick Beeman, the usual host, and what one medical student called me the other day, the laid-back and younger chill attending. Uh, So I'm just throwing that out there for shameless (laughs) self-aggrandizement. At any rate... I want to make a quick apology for not getting a surgery episode out sooner. Again, as you hear me say all the time, I am a full-time OBGYN, and my ability to schedule interviews is somewhat uh, limited throughout the month, so we had to reschedule uh, a couple of our our guests um, who also being surgery, uh, (laughs) were uh, unable to meet the appointments that we had set up because of surgeries. Makes sense, right? We'll be posting additional interviews, at least one of them, for this surgery shelf-focused series. And as we continue covering all the required clerkships and content related to that, up next will be psychiatry, And that surgery episode may get posted after we launch the uh, psych episode. So just FYI. If you're studying for step two or one of your shelf exams, don't forget we relaunched in conjunction with Elsevier and the inimitable Dr. Ted O'Connell, our chief content officer and author of Step 2 Secrets, Crush Step 1, and other things as well as the star of a very interesting, at least I think so, video that we made introducing the Step 2 Secrets podcast with the question, who is Ted O'Connell? So check that out. There's a link in the show notes or just head over to our website, insidetheboards.com. Click podcast to see all the podcasts we have and go to the Step 2 Secrets page to view that video. And please give us some feedback on that because we want to take the brand, if you will, in a more laid back and chill direction in keeping with my reputation amongst the medical students and the fact that, you know, this whole process of medical education can be a little stodgy. And while professionalism is important, it is not coextensive with boring. At least that's the vibe we're going for. This episode today launches the first collaboration we are doing with Stat Pearls. If you haven't checked out Stat Pearls, you absolutely should. You can go to statpearls.com, sign up for a free account. They have a ginormous bank of review questions, uh, many of which are USMLE style. It's free. And all of the questions are written by content experts, faculty at med schools, indexed to PubMed, and rigorously researched and come from primary literature. So it's good stuff. So thanks to StatPearls for letting us use this content. Here are a handful of short bite-sized questions for your surgery shelf exam. First up. A 45-year-old female presents with a chief complaint of dysphagia. Her vital signs are normal, and a physical exam is within normal limits. A barium esophagogram 
shows a long metasophageal stricture with tapered proximal and distal margins and an associated hiatal hernia. Which of the following is the most likely explanation for these findings? A. Medication-induced stricture. B. Esophageal cancer. C. Barrett esophagus. Or D. Prior mediastinal irradiation. And the correct answer here is Barrett esophagus. Like I said, these are going to be a little more bite-sized and to the point, uh, trying to get you uh, to take away something from each of the questions that you can carry with you on exam day to the testing center. So, note, the combination of a hiatal hernia and a mid-esophageal stricture on an esophagogram favors the diagnosis of Barrett esophagus. A little mnemonic to help you remember facts about Barrett esophagus is BAR, B-A-R-R, becomes adenocarcinoma, results from reflux. So don't forget that essential association between Barrett's esophagus and esophageal adenocarcinoma. On the other hand, it's important to remember that squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus is the most common type of esophageal cancer worldwide, and squamous cell is associated with tobacco and alcohol use. Patients with esophageal cancer in general present with progressive dysphagia, initially to solids and then later to liquids. A barium swallow will show narrowing of the esophagus with irregular borders that protrude into the lumen, while in Barrett esophagus, you tend to see just uniform stricturing with tapering, which is a sign of more benign disease. Medications can produce esophageal ulcers, especially tetracycline and doxycycline, but they don't produce strictures. So that rules out choice A, medication-induced stricture. I already mentioned some stuff about esophageal cancer versus Barrett esophagus. And then the final choice, prior mediastinal irradiation, this can cause smooth tapered stricturing um, if a high enough dose of radiation is administered. But on an exam, it's very unlikely, uh, without mentioning a history of radiation, uh, that this diagnosis would be the cause. All right, so moving on. A 35-year-old female presents with a chief complaint of abdominal pain. Past surgical history is significant for a total abdominal hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. Further workup reveals a diagnosis of bowel obstruction. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these findings? Is it A, malignancy, B, adhesive bands, C, incarcerated hernia, or D, volvulus? So here's one you should really remember both for practice and exams. Adhesive bands from prior surgery or peritonitis, say PID, um, are often a cause of small bowel obstruction. In fact, it's the most common cause of small bowel obstruction in patients with a history of surgery. And the second most common cause? Hernias. What happens with adhesions is that these bands um, of scar tissue 
get between loops of bowel and cause kinking. Patients with a bowel obstruction typically have cramping abdominal pain with a crescendo-decrescendo pattern occurring around 10 minutes where it'll get really intense and then back down a little bit, coinciding with uh, peristalsis. You can expect to see vomiting in small bowel obstruction. If you recall, um, there's non-bilious and bilious forms. Depending on whether an obstruction is proximal or distal to the ampulla of Vater, also known as the hepatopancreatic duct. The structure is formed by the union of the pancreatic duct and the common bile duct. And you should remember that the ampulla of Vater is the uh, landmark halfway along uh, the duodenum that marks the transition from the foregut to the midgut, which means also that it's the point where the celiac trunk stops supplying the bowel's um, blood and the superior mesenteric artery takes over. So the cystic duct leaves the gallbladder and joins with the common hepatic duct to form the common bile duct. The common bile duct then joins the pancreatic duct, creating the ampulla of Vater. The ampulla of Vater is where pancreatic enzymes and bile are released into the duodenum. So whether vomiting is bilious or non-bilious depends on whether an obstruction, if there is one, is proximal or distal to the ampulla of Vater. Bilious vomiting is green, um, and it indicates that there is a, an obstruction distal to the ampulla of Vater, because if you think about it, anything following that portion of the duodenum gets backed up, then you'll get a backup of bile, and that will dump into the proximal duodenum and stomach, and you'll puke it up. The vomiting in a small bowel obstruction will be bilious and non-feculent, but if the obstruction is um, uh, more distal along the small bowel, you can actually see feculent vomiting, which is disgusting. Partial small bowel obstructions, patients will continue to pass flatus, uh, but tend not to be able to pass stool. And in complete obstruction, and this is important, you see no flatus, no stool, which is obstipation. A vignette might mention a prior surgical scar. On auscultation of the bowel, you'll hear high-pitched sounds. And as far as diagnosis goes, I mean, there's a bunch of things that are notable, I guess. But lactic acidosis is a particularly worrisome sign, suggesting um, necrosis of the bowel. But importantly, an abdominal film will demonstrate a stepwise pattern of dilated small bowel loops with air fluid levels. It's worthwhile kind of looking at a picture of that to, to see um, how that appears on a plane, an upright plane film of the abdomen, because that's a very easy one to put as a media-inclusive question on the USMLE or a shelf exam. Yeah, what else about small bowel obstruction? Um, I think that's pretty uh, good as it goes. I mean, there are a number of different causes and some, you know, unique pediatric conditions that can cause a small bowel obstruction. And I suppose it's important to note that um, while the leading cause of small bowel obstruction overall and, and specifically towards adults is adhesions since you know, adults are more likely to have had prior abdominal surgery. Um, hernias are the most common cause in uh, the pediatric population. 
And let's see, uh, choice C was incarcerated hernia, and choice D was volvulus. Probably we'll just devote some more questions to hernia specifically, since that's a big general surgery topic. So I won't go into any more detail on that. Nah, I guess since bowel obstructions are, there are unique syndromes associated with it, uh, just a few more facts for you to remember and keep in mind especially related to peds. So you can see a sausage-shaped mass in the upper, uh, the right upper quadrant. This in a pediatric patient, usually six months to toddler years, indicates an intussusception. One portion of the bowel telescopes into an adjacent segment and usually proximal to the ileocecal valve. Plain radiographs will show um, what's referred to as a target sign, two concentric radiolucent circles superimposed on the right kidney. And it's the right side because intussusception is most properly ileocolic intussusception in the pediatric population. This is actually the most common cause of bowel obstruction in the first two years of life, with important risk factors being Meckel's diverticulum and Henoch-Schönlein purpura. Important findings, especially on an exam, would be the presence of bloody mucus in the stools, which is sometimes referred to as red currant jelly stool, and then, of course, that palpable sausage-shaped mass in the right upper quadrant. Volvulus is an important concept to remember, especially in the pediatric and older people population. Volvulus is defined as the twisting of a loop of bowel on its mesentery. Infants who have malrotation of the gut usually present with volvulus um, shortly after uh, they're born. Bilious emesis and distension of the abdomen. The classic finding on an abdominal film is the double bubble sign, which represents dilation of the stomach and the duodenum. In the older population, uh, you can also see a sigmoid or cecal volvulus. With sigmoid volvulus, and I'll just mention this since it's the most common in the um, older non-pediatric population, presents with episodes of abdominal pain, which get better after the passage of stooler gas, and then rapidly progressive symptoms related to bowel obstruction. So on plain film, abdominal x-rays, there are the bent inner tube and coffee bean signs, referring to the appearance of air-filled closed loops of the colon, and a barium enema will show the bird's beak appearance, where the segment of proximal bowel and distal bowel rotate uh, to form the obstruction, the volvulus itself. And it's a bird's beak because this point, the, at this point, there will be an acute and sharp tapering of the contrast medium. In the older population in whom you suspect a sigmoid volvulus, um, the next step in management is a flexible sigmoidoscopy, unless, and importantly, uh, there are signs of peritonitis or perforation of the bowel, in which case do not perform a flexible sigmoidoscopy. If you do suspect peritonitis from perforation of the bowel, next step in management is laparotomy. All right, that's all we'll do for today. Go download the Inside the Boards beta iOS app and head over to our website, insidetheboards.com. Sign up for our email list because very soon we will be uh, releasing our 
cross-platform app with many more features, and it's oh, it's so cool. I'm hoping to put up like a prototype um, walkthrough on our website uh, very shortly. And if you would like to help support the creation of our all audio QBank, you can go to the website, and there is on the menu a support tab. If you appreciate the work we do here at Inside the Boards and would like to provide a small donation, it would be much appreciated. Building an app costs a lot more money than I thought, and your support will help us continue the work we do to provide you high-yield content on the go. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back next time, probably with some more high-yield stat pearls questions.